Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine here at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Thursday, September 1st, 2022. Here in Annapolis, we just published the September issue of Proceedings, focused on 100 years of tailhook aviation, so USS Langley to USS Ford and everything in between. Um, and also uh, in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center starting tomorrow, the class of uh, 1987, USNA 87, so that's why I'm wearing my 87 shirt today, uh, is holding its 35th reunion, so we're looking forward to that. Go Navy beat Delaware. Uh, and for anyone out there who's a Naval Academy grad uh, with upcoming reunions, you can think about the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center as a place to have uh, part of your reunion weekends. Uh, we are doing that for my class and also Ward Carroll's class, class of 82, uh, in October. Um, in news this week, former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev passed away on Tuesday. So today's guest is a gentleman named Ben Griffin. Ben Griffin, he's the author of a new Naval Institute Press book. It's called Reagan's War Stories, A Cold War Presidency. Ben is a U.S. Army major or Lieutenant Colonel Promotable uh, with a Ph.D. in history from the University of Texas. He's a 2006 U.S. Military Academy graduate, go Navy beat Army. And now he teaches in history at the Department of History at uh, at West Point. Ben, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Uh, I should note at the start that you know all thoughts and opinions are mine and not DODs, the Army's, or West Point's, uh, except for this one: Go Army, Beat Navy. <laughs> so, congratulations on the book. Uh, before we talk a bit about Mikhail Gorbachev and his relation with President Reagan, um, tell our listeners what inspired you to write the book. Yeah, so I told this a little bit in my preface, but I was a, a very book hungry, uh, you know, tween when I was 11, 12 years old. And so over summer vacation, I was just tearing through everything in the house. And one day my dad handed me a copy of The Hunt for Red October. Uh, and so I read that uh, in a hurry and then just went down all the rest of the Clancy books and really kind of started a lifelong love of the techno thriller genre and then, you know, science fiction and all this all this great stuff that's been out there. And so I got to say that, you know, I really started this research project when I was about 11 years old uh, because I was able to dive back into it here as a, as a professional now. And it's been great. Cool. So Mikhail Gorbachev was essentially the, the leader of the Soviet Union, the head of state from about 1985 until it dissolved in 1991. Uh, been a lot of news stories and coverage at New York Times, Washington Post. I was reading some things. Um, I know you submitted um, a, uh, an op-ed to the, uh, the Washington Post uh, last night about President Gorbachev. But um, where did Gorby and uh, President Reagan, where did they first meet and, and how did they get along? So they first met in Geneva in 1985. Uh, and so this is for the first time Reagan sat down with any of the Soviet leaders face to face. Um, you know, there's a waiting for them to stop dying so frequently because they ran through a number in his early years of the administration, but then looking to when they could get serious about the Armstrong discussions. And so where they really started to, to form the relationship was in some of the post uh, formal session meetings when they had the hosted dinners uh, at the chalets in Geneva and they're sitting in front of the fire and they're discussing things. Uh, and then Reagan throws out oddball questions like, hey, uh, if there are aliens behind Haley's comets and they're going to invade the earth. Would you team up with us to fight them? Because uh, we do it for you. And you know, Gorbachev's kind of confused by this and says, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, and it's one of many times that Reagan brings up the little green men thing, something that kind of frustrated Colin Powell quite a bit when he was the NSA. But uh, it was also part of how his mind worked, was always thinking about sort of stories and narratives and, and ways to be memorable like that. 
So your book is about stories that motivated or guided President Reagan. You point out that several Tom Clancy novels played a significant role in his thinking. Uh, as you know, the Naval Institute Press published Clancy's first novel, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, Reagan read that one. It was famously on his uh, sort of um, uh, side table as he was doing a fireside chat on national TV one time. Um, so how did Clancy's novels play out in the Reagan presidential narrative? So in a couple different ways. Uh, so you mentioned Hunter October being the first one. Uh, Reagan gets a copy of that for Christmas from his longtime aide, Nancy Reynolds, in 1984. So he reads that, and it just like like I was when I was 11, 12 years old, just enamored by it. Uh, and so he's showing up at meetings the next day talking about how um, he's sorry, he's tired, he's been up so late, uh, but it's because he's been staying up all night reading this book. Uh, and so his staff starts to take the hint that, oh, this is something that's important to the boss, and so we should probably take a look at it. And they start scouring DC for the book. The press picks up on it. Uh, eventually, a reporter asks him what he's reading. He points to a copy, he calls it the perfect yarn and unputdownable. Clancy comes to the White House for a, a visit in the Oval Office and then a luncheon with a lot of people in the uh, defense establishment. It's actually the day after uh, Gorbachev ascends to the premiership in the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that's also on Reagan's mind at the time. Uh, but they have a nice meeting inside the Oval Office. Uh, Clancy talks to him about his next book, which is going to be uh, Red Storm Rising, with, written with Larry Bond. And Reagan asks who wins, and Clancy tells him the good guys. Uh, and they kind of part from there. And so for The Hunt for October, what's unusual about it is that Reagan is very public in his praise for the work. Uh, and really kind of put it front and center. And it was a book that at the time had done reasonably well selling kind of locally in Annapolis and uh, DC area, uh, hitting Clancy's target audience of military officers. You know, he'd been an insurance salesman before, uh, located kind of between Annapolis and DC. Uh, so all his clients were submariners and other naval officers, and that's where he's getting some of his information from. Uh, but for him to kind of elevate the book, and it takes off uh, and makes the bestseller list for the first time the week after the lunch at the White House, uh, it's because of the themes that are inside of it. And Reagan spent a lot of his first term trying to uh, restore ideas of American military honor, American military strength, both through you know, the physical buildup that you see, the investment in new technologies, the expansion of the force size, uh, but then also sort of in the moral language that goes around it and the way the military is portrayed and, and fiction and culture matters to him. Uh, when he was in his first year in office, he came to West Point to give uh, the commencement address in 1981. And one of the early drafts of the speech I thought was pretty telling. And you look at, there's a paragraph that excoriates Hollywood for un-American pandering to, or for pandering to anti-American sentiments. And in the margin, uh, there's things written, you know, Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, The Killing Fields, these very good movies that certainly don't portray the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. military in a very good light, though. And that offended Reagan. Uh, and so he was very keen to the impact of that culture, uh, the impact of popular culture, and wanted to sort of turn that. And so for Hunt for October to be doing so well and to perfectly encapsulate the objectives of that first term where he is, again, investing in technology, talking up how great the people who serve are. Uh, and that is exactly what Clancy intentionally brings into the book. Uh, and so he sees that sort of as a vindication of his first term. The second book, Red Storm Rising, comes out in August of 86. And Reagan reads that one almost immediately as well. And Clancy kept his promise to Reagan, and that one, the good guys win. Uh, so NATO is able to defeat the Warsaw Pact in a World War scenario uh, with surprisingly little collateral damage, which we'll get to in, in just a second. But so Reagan reads the plane or the book as almost as soon as it comes out, um, and he goes to Reykjavik to meet with Gorbachev uh, in early October. 
As he's flying out there, he walks to the back of Air Force One where his staff is assembled, uh, Ken Edelman, George Schultz, a lot of the important negotiators are going to be in, in there as well. And so you think, hey, this is where we're going to talk about the summit. We're going to talk about throw weights. We're going to talk about numbers, all this very technical stuff, which I mean, Reagan was never big on in the first place. Uh, and he's certainly not going to do that on the plane right now or right then. Instead, he talks about the book he just read, Red Storm Rising. Uh, he calls it research, saying that it takes place in Iceland, so therefore it's clearly relevant. The staff laughs, say, hey, it's a good joke, sir. Uh, and then everything kind of goes on their way. But he wasn't joking. Uh, and we know this because after the summit, uh, where they famously come close to almost getting rid of all nuclear weapons in a 10-year window, which surprised everybody. Um, it was not supposed to go that far on the summit. It wasn't an idea Reagan really talked about much ahead of time. And so both the staff, uh, the press, uh, our allies, our partners, everyone is caught very off guard by this, and there's a furious reaction to it. Part of that reaction is Margaret Thatcher. Um, so she calls up Reagan when he gets back to D.C. and is rather upset with him, uh, saying, hey, you almost destabilized the balance of power in Europe because we don't have the conventional power to get rid of our nukes, basically. And Reagan listens to her and says, well, uh, you know, I don't see it that way. You should read Red Storm Rising. Uh, I think it shows very well where we're at right now. So he's recommending this book to another for, uh, leader of, of an allied nation, one of his closest partners. Uh, and so it's really telling how important and how much weight he puts on that book. Uh, and so what I argue is that he uses it as kind of a personal war game because the narrative, uh, which the New York Times called good news for Mr. Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense, is because everything that they had done in the first term works perfectly. All the new weapon systems work as designed. Airland battle comes across the way that it's supposed to on paper, with one key exception. There is no employment of nuclear weapons. Uh, so the U.S. wins and with NATO that were completely conventionally, uh, which sets it apart from other books like The Third World War by General um, Sir John Hackett, uh, which show a NATO victory but require employment of nuclear weapons. And so that narrative to Reagan was tantalizing because it a speaks to the success that his mission has already had. It matches a lot of what he's getting in classified briefings at the time about the improvements to the quality of the military. And it shows where he wants to go and then can enable his lifelong goal of nuclear abolition. And so that becomes a very important touchstone for him. The next book that Clancy has that really has an impact on Reagan is Cardinal of the Kremlin. And that is Clancy's book on SDI. And basically the entire book is an argument saying that Ronald Reagan is right about everything. Uh, and Jack Ryan actually says the president is right uh, in one of the climactic chapters when there's a Gorbachev stand in that he's talking to in Moscow. Huh. Uh, and so Reagan loved it because it's all saying hey, he's doing great things, but is a, a popular fiction argument in favor of SDI that gets read broadly. Uh, and it's one of several pieces of fiction that are involved in this discussion, both for and against uh, science fiction in particular as a genre is tearing itself apart over this issue uh, with writers like Robert Heinlein uh, very much advocating for the program and others like Isaac Asimov and Arthur Clarke uh, coming out against it. And so it's very controversial. And so Cl uh, Reagan very much appreciated that Clancy was A, on his side, saying he was right, but then telling that to his very large reading audience at that point in time. So it's interesting that uh, that Thatcher story, right, you know, she uh, is surprised by the proposal that Reagan puts on the on the table at uh, at Reykjavik. Um, it, it it falls apart. They don't they don't get to that agreement to essentially like almost zero out the nuclear arsenals because of some uh, really some um, uh, issues with um, mo uh, monitoring and being able to trust and verify. Right. That's that's uh, essentially what uh, what what Gorbachev is 
is largely uh, opposed to? The, the, what kills it is that Reagan won't let go of uh, SDI. Um, so Gorbachev is asking him to confine, confine the research for the program to a laboratory for a 10-year period, and he is unwilling to do that. And there's some very interesting exchanges between the two as they're trying to plead with each other to do it. Um, you know, Reagan telling Gorbachev, like, you don't have to worry about uh, the press in your country. Uh, just do this for me, please, because I can get pilloried by all the hardliners back at home. And, and Gorbachev's like, you think I don't get criticism? Are you crazy? Uh, and it's just a really kind of genuine moment between the two where they both see something that's very close uh, and are frustrated by the other's un or inability to understand exactly how they see the world there. And, and at that time, do you think uh, Gorbachev had an understanding of just how economically pressed the Soviet Union was to try to keep up with the military industrial complex of the United States? So this SDI thing is happening, right? Uh, it's, it's being talked about. Reagan's talking about Star Wars and SDI and being able to protect the nation and protect our allies from incoming ballistic missiles, that sort of thing. Um, and, and it, it, you know, I'm, I'm guessing at that point, uh, Gorbachev has an understanding of just the economic limitations of the Soviet system and thinks if, if that's what we're up against next, we're not going to be able to keep up. Absolutely. Uh, he, he's very much aware of the economic status of the Soviets there. And SDI is a pressure point on that. And it's not even that they thought it was going to be achievable in the near term. Uh, they just recognized that over the long term, they wouldn't be able to invest the capital to do that. Uh, on the fringes of Reykjavik, you have some of the senior Soviet military officials talking to uh, you know, U.S. negotiators saying that you're resting it, we believe you can do it. Uh, and we just we can't compete with that. And you look at pretty much everything Gorbachev has done since taking over in 85. And it all involves that recognition of where the Soviets are economically and how strained and stressed that system is. You know, that's a big part of why the war in Afghanistan comes to end, that along with just the brutal losses they're taking there. Uh, you know, some estimates say that about half of their GDP was going to the military. And so cutting back on investment in weapons, being able to pair back the nuclear force would all be very advantageous to what they were trying to, what he was trying to accomplish with his economic reforms. Uh, he's very open about that. And SDI is very clearly on his mind from the first days he's in office. So George Bush is the U.S. representative who goes to attend the funeral um, and meets with Gorbachev shortly afterwards. And there Gorbachev is pressing them on SDI, calling it, you know, in violation of uh, all these treaties and something the U.S. is doing that's reckless and provocative. And every time he meets with Reagan, it comes up. So it came up in Geneva, it comes up in Reykjavik. Uh, just every chance he gets, he's kind of pressing on, trying to get them to stop the program. Uh, and so, again, it speaks to the importance of that. And that importance is entirely tied to the cost and then also the technology that they can't match as well. Yeah. And it's, it's in, in your book, in Chapter 5, you mention how not only uh, Maggie Thatcher, but also uh, it was a Helmut Kohl was the German chancellor at the time uh, and other European leaders, NATO leaders were really shocked at the idea that the United States would would bargain down with the Soviets the, the size of the nuclear arsenal because then they felt that they weren't protected by that that nuclear umbrella. And and they probably didn't have the confidence in SDI that that it, it seems that the, the Russians did, the Soviets did, that Gorbachev was worried about it. But on the uh, on the on the NATO front, um, you know, they they feel very uh, comforted by the fact that they're covered by the nuclear umbrella of the United States. And if that umbrella shrinks, um, they don't feel the confidence that this SDI thing is actually going to hold up for them, right? 
Right. And certainly, you know, in 86, the technology is far away from being able to realistically do that. And so you are looking at a development timeline of decades and it, it raises questions of U.S. commitment to the continent. You know, the U.S. information agency is reporting back on European media time. This goes off like a bomb. Uh, it's just shocking in Bonn. It's shocking in Paris uh, and obviously in London. And all the you know, official leaders are, are reaching back. There's a huge diplomatic press by by the British with their ambassador, Anthony Eklund, to try and get clarity on what exactly Reagan meant to do. Uh, Helmer Kohl is very concerned about this. It's just uh, this fear that the U.S. is trying to pull back from Europe in a way that was certainly not Reagan's intent. Uh, he's had more confidence in the conventional side of things at that point in time uh, than pretty much anyone else around him did. Yeah, one of our uh, frequent listeners, Austere Roberto, has a question for you. It says, uh, does the Thatcher anecdote show that the U.S. intelligence community and military need to make information more digestible to civilian leadership? I think that's a big part of what the appeal of the book was to, to Reagan, is that he likes narratives. That's how he thought about things. It's more immersive. Uh, war games do very similar things. When you can put yourself into a point and have to make choices and decisions, the lessons come out more clearly. And so I, I would agree that the more... Uh, you know, a policy advisor, the intel community, the military able to make something accessible, uh, make something that is clear and coherent and not riddled with technical jargon, uh, then yes, it's going to have a bigger impact uh, and be more likely than to sway the policy uh, in the direction that you want. A good example of that, sorry to cut, is the uh, Citizens Advisory Group, is a, a group of science fiction writers, scientists, astronauts, military leaders. Uh, they get together in 1980 after Reagan's election, wanting to influence space policy and, and SDI in particular, actually. Uh, and so you got Larry Pornell, Larry Niven, Robert Heinlein as the leading writers, uh, Edward Teller, uh, Nobel Prize-winning physicist, uh, Buzz Aldrin, a couple other uh, again former astronauts are all involved in this, and they produced a report uh, that basically the scientists all got together to talk about the technical piece. They gave it to the sci-fi writers who made it approachable, accessible gave it to some people in Reagan's camp. He read it and then incorporated some of that language into his A3 speech introducing uh, SDI to the world, the idea that it's better to protect the world than avenge it, basically. Um, and there's a number of meetings afterwards. Reagan praises the group for their advocacy, uh, writing a letter to Daniel Graham, who was advocating a program called High Frontier. Uh, and so there's a lot of that. The, the more accessible, the more clear your language and your prose is, the, the better off it's going to be. Yeah, that's Part of why they called him a great communicator, right? He, he, he's spoken stories. There was a lot of allegory there. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, I mentioned earlier that you submitted an op-ed to the Washington Post uh, on Gorbachev's death. Um, have they accepted it? They declined it. This oh, just they declined it. So I'll submit somewhere else. But. Okay. All right. Well, well, good luck uh, getting it published because I thought it was a terrific piece. Uh, I saw it in email early this morning. But um, you start off with the story of Gorbachev attending Ronald Reagan's funeral. Um, and, and patting the casket. So tell that story to our listeners. So when Reagan dies, they have a state funeral in, in D.C. And Gorbachev surprises pretty much everyone by you know flying out there to attend it. Uh, and so there's a moment when he has just a, a private couple seconds by the casket. Uh, and he deserves sort of putting his hand on it and saying something. Uh, and he comes back and you know the press asks him what it is. I just gave him a little pat. You know, and to me, it just speaks to how enduring that relationship was that he was willing to, again, fly across the world uh, to say goodbye and let go of a adversary, uh, someone that was a partner in some ways, uh, and someone who he, along with him, helped change the trajectory of the modern world. What What do you think of uh, Gorbachev's legacy these days? Um, you know, so the, the, 
where we were heading in, in the late 80s and, and as the, at the start of the, uh, well, at the end of the Cold War and the start of the, the new Russian period uh, was a, and, and uh, some of our listeners know that I was the naval attache in Russia in the mid-2000s and at a time when uh, President George W. Bush and, and uh, Vladimir Putin were getting along well and Putin had gone to Bush's Crawford Ranch and the you know, our president looked into Putin's eyes and seen his soul, all that stuff, right? Um, and there was a lot of goodness happening at the time, U.S. Navy ship visits to Russian ports, et cetera. So the trajectory from, you know, 85 to about 2005 or six was was a pretty good one between the United States and Russia uh, in, in our relations. And now, obviously, we are in uh, what is a, a, at least as bad as the Cold War ever was you know, perhaps in, in some ways much worse. Um, I'm just curious, what, what do you think about the legacy that Gorbachev left? What's left of it? Um, and, and how is he viewed in, in Russia these days? Yeah, and so I think, you know, what's interesting about Gorbachev is he's a failure. Um, you know, he did not set out to end the Cold War. He didn't set out to be the last leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, what he did, though, was fail in ways that helped the world. It's, it's kind of strange to put it like that. Uh, and it's because he had the ability to let go of things. Um, you know, he's looking at Glasnost and Perestroika, looking at reforming the way, you know, Soviets are able to talk about things, how they're able to buy things. Uh, that involved letting go of a large manner of state control uh, over their individual lives. When you have uh, countries in Eastern Europe who are looking to break away from the Warsaw Pact, to break away from communism, Past Soviet leaders would roll in the tanks. That happened in Prague, happened in Budapest. Uh, threats of martial law in Poland are actually, uh, you know, the first crisis that Reagan faces in 81. Uh, Gorbachev's unwilling to do that, A, because of the cost, but then also recognizing that it's not a sustainable way of, of maintaining your empire. Uh, so, somewhere with how he responds to the US realizing they need to let go of this arms race because it's economically devastating to, to the Soviet Union at the time. He wavers at points, uh, most prominently in 1991 in January, uh, as it looks like the Baltics are going to break away uh, and the unit itself is going to collapse with Ukraine making noises too. They send troops into Lithuania that results in the death of 15 protesters in Vilnius and four more in Riga. Uh, and it takes a few months even after that for Gorbachev to really firmly go back to the, the letting go model. And, uh, that sets the stage for the coup in August that was just incredibly inept and uh, a massive failure. But then also the final demise of the Soviet Union on Christmas in December of 91. And it's the the humanity that goes into that, the, the recognition that he doesn't want to be the person uh, that destroys the world. It's the recognition that the only way forward is to, to give reform a chance. Uh, it helped end the Cold War peacefully in a way that I think if you'd said that to someone in the 50s, they'd be shocked. If you said the Cold War is over in 1991, uh, they'd ask how he will die to make that happen. And that was uh, the number that that was, was much lower than it would have been uh, without Gorbachev. And so you have in this period of optimism, uh, you know, certainly throughout Eastern Europe, uh, certainly throughout much of the developing world, that they're going to be free of this really shackling framework of the Cold War. Uh, the problem I see is that you know Putin experienced that very differently. He was directly involved in this letting go of Gorbachev as he was stationed in Dresden in 1989 as the Berlin Wall is coming down, uh, and he feels he's been abandoned out there and he's been betrayed, uh, and that the, he doesn't understand the weakness of the Soviet Union in the same way that Gorbachev does. So he has this fictionalized version of a immensely powerful state that 
was certainly not the case then and really was never that. But that's the vision he's been pushing for and he can't let go of. And it's come in direct conflict with what Gorbachev's was. And so that has taken away a lot of the legacy. But I think certainly in Eastern Europe, you see where it's still thrived. And that's where why NATO remains very popular in Eastern Europe, why you know Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland all joined as quickly as they could. It's why Ukraine wants to join, uh, is they recognize that opportunity that stemmed from the end of the Cold War, the unification of Germany, its immediate accession into NATO. Um, and so that element, I think, lasts there. Uh, but again, on the Russian side, it, it's certainly not the case because of the rough decade they endured in the 90s uh, and this very you know, revisionist vision of the Cold War history. It's kind of hardline approach that Putin has taken. And Gorbachev's legacy in the country then is viewed very skeptically. He certainly had fallen out with Putin by the early uh, 20-teens. And arguably, I think Putin probably just wanted to use him anyway, never really bought into Gorbachev as a figure. Um, and actively being diminished then there. I'll be curious to see what the funeral looks like for him. I mean, certainly they're going to have something large and impressive. I don't think it's going to be on the same scale uh, that would have been if someone that was more more liberal minded than Putin. Yeah, was. I was I was seeing headlines uh, this morning that Putin was saying that he wouldn't attend the funeral. So that's that's shocking. Right? It I, is. I that's pretty it. shocking. Right. Um, and yeah, you're right that, uh, you know, Putin as a, a KGB officer is in Dresden. He's in East Germany. The wall comes down. Um, you know, he loads up the family in the Zhiguli and 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 kind of limps back to St. Petersburg in in um, absolute abject horror that this thing that he's dedicated his life to has fallen apart. And um, and he's he's you know tried since then to rebuild it uh, to the extent possible. Uh, although again, it's um, you know under under the Soviet Union, it was uh, I think the economic system was. Um, it was just so badly structured. There was there was corruption in the Soviet system, but the structure of it, the, the incentives were all in the wrong places, right? And in the current, uh, you know, Russian, you know, economic system, it's just thoroughly corrupt. It's a kleptocracy, rather than maybe a, you know the, the 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 failure of the centrally managed system. It's just a, a total kleptocracy. I heard one um, uh, pundit last night. Um, saying that uh, on, on the, uh, that same question about Gorbachev's legacy, um, and it was a Russian, it was a former Russian who lives, lives in exile now and uh, is a, is a um, uh, journalist. And he was saying, well, it, it's hard to see much of Gorbachev, um, you know, sort of living on, except his, his um, I would say that his legacy is that he was the last Soviet slash Russian leader who wasn't, whose main goal was not lining his own pockets. And I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, Yeltsin certainly was uh, and and Putin has certainly been, you know, by some reports, maybe the richest man on, on earth because he took ownership or private, you know, sort of uh, uh, quiet ownership uh, of of about half of most of the oligarchs businesses. And so he's uh, he's he's a business partner, a silent partner with half of the oligarchs. I think there's some similarity um, between. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, Austin Roberto offers a comment. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, um, I think there's some similarity between, you know, the kleptocracy the of Putin and what you saw kind of in the, the mid Brezhnev years when he was still somewhat coherent and thoughtful uh, is that it was very corrupt, but very tied to, you know, a small group of industrial elites that are are making these rules kind of go through. And that's when, you know, the idea of blot uh, and access became sort of the defining currency of what you could do in the Soviet Union. And I think there's some similarities with the current Russian state. 
Yeah, it's what they know, I guess. Uh, Roberto says uh, Gorbachev had to have internal support for his reforms to push the Siloviki or the Zampolites or, or whoever. Uh, and and he didn't he never really had that uh, or there wasn't enough, probably enough buy in to, to you know, to change the, the course of the, the, the Soviet state. So he was uh, an interesting figure politically because he wanted to reform. But he was also very concerned of getting the Khrushchev treatment, that there would be basically a coup from uh, the hardliners that would force him from power. You know, again, what Brezhnev did to take power uh, shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so he was very hesitant to go as far as he probably preferred to do in fear of alienating that, that hardline uh, communist support that he had, which meant that he was taking a lot of criticism from the people who were active reformers. Uh, and then again, from the hardliners for, for actually doing anything at all. And so it made it difficult for him to push these programs through. And that's where by, by the time you see him in 1991, he's very much a lonely figure. He has no political base really to call upon to, to save him. You know, so Yeltsin uh, and then the presidents of Belarus, Ukraine and Lithuania are actively plotting against him to tear down the union. The generals are actively plotting against him in order to take power and restore the, the glory of the Soviet Union. And so uh, because he tried to steer this middle ground, he gets left by himself. Uh, and again, very isolated, very lonely. And that's kind of how he spent the last 30 years afterwards, too, just this sort of strange relic figure in, in Russian politics. Yeah, I remember that when I was in uh, Moscow as the, as the attache, um, occasionally you would see some news about Gorbachev, you know, attending some event or, um, you know, giving a speech about human rights or, you know, this or that. And the, the you know the the applause and the reaction by the Russian people was always very muted. It was like, eh, that guy Gorbachev. I don't know that we really like him. You know, he he is very much viewed was viewed as a as a failed leader because he he oversaw the demise of, of the Soviet Union. Um, I had a uh, uh, one of the most interesting conversations I had was actually with our our uh, we, we had a, a a maid and a nanny uh, when I lived in Russia, and. Um, you know, so in 2005, she's working as a maid and a nanny. Um, but on the Soviet system, she had been a um, she'd been a scientist. She had a, a master's degree level, uh, you know, chemistry major. Had worked in a you know a, a Soviet state research laboratory uh, on advanced you know materials chemist you know kind of thing, materials science. Um, and and she her her recollections. She looked back at the Soviet Union through very rose colored glasses. And uh, you know Gorbachev and and that whole ilk Yeltsin, they were in her mind you know really failed leaders because they had let the the Soviet thing slip away. So interesting. The 90s were a remarkably hard time for the Soviet or for the former Soviet Union, and so it's that time story was not uncommon. It, that's one of the driving forces of a lot of the the animus and the support for for Putin as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back to your book for uh, one more question uh, and back to President Reagan for a minute. Um, so you start the book off with this uh, Saturday Night Live skit, uh, which I had completely forgotten about. <laughs> but as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. And so so tell what that skit was like. And then my question is, you know, it, it represents a, uh, a sliding scale on where people saw President Reagan. Right. On one on one hand, as this sort of doddering, uh, you know, octogenarian um and and on the other hand as this very sly brilliant uh you know world leader uh, but tell the story of the skit and then and then i'm curious where you come down having written this book about reagan on on where he was as a leader 
Yeah, so the skit is President Reagan Mastermind. Uh, it's up on YouTube. So after you watch this, uh, I encourage you to go check that out. Uh, it opens up in the Oval Office and you have Phil Hartman playing Ronald Reagan. And he's being interviewed in the wake of the Iran-Contra scandal. And the reporter asks him what he knows. And he gives this very wandering, kind of meandering answer. It, physically, he just looks old. He looks grandfatherly. He's kind of shaking a little bit. And, you know, I hope I helped you with the very little that I know. Um, and it kind of gradually ushers the reporter out of the White House. And he goes into an adjoining room and physically transformed. Like Hartman stands up straighter, you know, just his tie, you know, this kind of keen look comes into his eye. Uh, and, you know, all of his staff is around him. He starts barking out orders about how they're still going to fund the Contras and get more weapons out to them. Uh, and the staff is befuddled. And so he's telling one of them, hey, you're going to have to resign for this. Uh, I already wrote your letter. It's on the word processor. And the guy's like, to do i'll do it myself and goes and prints it off for him uh but then someone comes back in and gets pulled back out uh and transforms back to the grandfatherly reagan doddering so he can uh, congratulate the girl scout who sold the most cookies uh before he's pulled out he goes this is the part of the job i hate uh, <laughs> does that goes back in um you know starts going through all this plan the staff gradually falls asleep over the night but then he's calling up people. He's speaking in German. He's speaking in Arabic. Uh, he is uh, doing exchange rates in his head, quoting Montesquieu. It's just this brilliant strategist. is, And so you have this dueling depiction then. You have the doddering figurehead, right? The, the former actor who was only a B-level celebrity in the first place, uh, you know, bedtime for Bonzo. Uh, and then you have this genius that is sitting there, you know, working late into the night uh, and guiding the policy. And that really kind of captured the different ways Americans are viewing the time because it's hard to understand who he was. And even if you were close to him, you only get so close. Reagan didn't really have any close personal friends. I mean, Nancy's always the one who gets uh, to know him the best, but there is always sort of a, a barrier to getting to know him on a, a deep personal level. And so a lot of people kind of projected what they thought he was onto him because of that, uh, or thought they knew what he was looking for. I followed the camp that he was a very intelligent individual. I don't think anyone gets elected uh, president without having a level of intelligence and certainly a large degree of ambition. Uh, but when you go through his his memoirs, his diaries, there is a keen mind at work there. And same thing when you talk to his close advisors, uh, you talk to in the administration, that he was the guiding force for his own policy. Uh, he also stunk at communicating that in ways that's weird because he's a great communicator. But he wanted to avoid conflict. Uh, he didn't like delivering bad news. Uh, and he had a hard time telling people that, no, we're not going to do this. And so it was not uncommon for, you know, a staffer to come in and think he'd blessed off on something they wanted to do, uh, which then led to confusion and severe issues down the, down the line for his presidency. But uh, that was more of a personal kind of emotional choice for him, not because of a lack of intellect. And again, clearly through his writing, clearly in his ability to think through how you reach people, there's a, a very smart uh, and capable mind there. Great. And you, you know, it comes through in your book that you have gone through Reagan's diaries and and the the archive and his library and and really research this book. It's a terrific, terrific uh, piece of work. Uh, so unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, just re reminder to our audience, our guest today has been the first West Point grad we've had on the show. <laughs> so congrats on that, Ben. Major Bren Ben Griffin is the author of Reagan's War Stories, A Cold War Presidency. It is just out from the Naval Institute Press, so you can go on onto uh, our website, usni.org, click on the uh, Press Books tab and find the book there. Hope you'll buy a copy. Uh, ben, congrats on the book, and thanks for being on the show today. 
Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. For our listeners, uh, until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.